Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. An excellent wife who can find for her worth is far above jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She looks for wool and flax and works with her hands in delight. She is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She rises also while it is still night and gives food to her household and portions to her maidens. She considers a field and buys it from her earnings. She plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. She extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow for her household, for all her household are clothed with scarlet. She makes coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates. When he sits among the elders of the land, she makes linen garments and sells them and supplies belts to the tradesmen. Strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and bless her, her husband also. And he praises her, saying, many daughters have done nobly, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her the product of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Amen. I want to talk about this passage. First of all, I want to say a few things by way of introduction First of all, the, this passage is what is known as a Hebraic acrostic. That is, this passage uh, consists of the Hebrew alphabet and um, each letter of the alphabet represents um, the letter of the first word in that verse. And so if I were to transliterate it into English, for example, it would be something along the lines of, like maybe boys and girls you might make for a Mother's Day card. Mom is A, awesome. Uh, mom is B, beautiful. Mom is C, creative. Mom is D, you know, delightful. Uh, and on you go, all the way to Z. So I think we have to properly understand that this is a Hebraic acrostic. Um, and uh, this is not the book of Romans that we're going through here verse by verse. Um, having said that, um, I do want to say, um, first of all, about the theme here. And the theme is that this is a poem about the excellent wife or woman. And two things about this. One, uh, she is rare. Um, most women are not like the proverbial woman we are studying tonight. Uh, most of the w women of the world have a different value system, different values, different goals and a different faith uh, than the woman that is mentioned here. So she is rare. Number two, she is valuable. So if you have this kind of woman, you need to prize her. And uh, if you don't, young men, uh, this is uh, the reason this passage was given, so that young men could 
have some wisdom when picking a helpmate uh, that you value the right kind of attributes in a woman. Now, I also want to say here that everything that is said here of the proverbial woman could be applied to a man. So it's not like we men are off the hook by any means. Everything that is spoken here really in many ways could find their home in application to a man. I want to make that point. Another point I also want to make by way of introduction is this passage speaks to you as a member of Christ church. This passage is a picture of what the church is to be because the Bible tells us what the church is a woman. The church is the wife of Jesus Christ. The Bible makes it clear. John chapter three, verse twenty nine. John the Baptist said that Jesus was the bridegroom. Now, if Jesus is the bridegroom, we ask, who's the bride? Well, John in his John in his revelation, chapter twenty one, verse nine, the apostle John says that the church is called the bride of the lamb. Paul agrees with John in Ephesians chapter five, verse twenty five and following. Paul says, husbands, love your wife as what Christ loved the church. So the analogy that the church is the wife and that husbands, you are to love your particular wife as Jesus Christ has loved us all. That he gave himself for us, that he might present us to the father with all glory and not with any spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we should be holy and blameless. And Paul said this is a great mystery of which he speaks. Now, what I want to do is I'm going to take this acrostic and I'm going to divide it into three parts, three parts. The woman of excellence is a woman Dot, dot, dot. Okay. Begins. The woman of excellence is a woman. Number one. The woman of excellence is a woman who knows and fears the Lord. Knows and fears the Lord. Number two. The woman of excellence is a woman who is industrious. And then number three. The woman of excellence is a woman who is wise and virtuous. All right. Woman of excellence is a woman who knows and fears the Lord, who's industrious, number two. Number three, who's wise and virtuous. Those are my three points here tonight. Now, I'm beginning with the end. Okay, the first shall be last in this sermon tonight. Look at verse 30. The last shall be first here. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Now, this is under the heading that a woman of excellence knows and fears the Lord. And I'm driving it from verse 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Now, the writer here of this proverb, much like the author of Ecclesiastes, concludes this at the end of his poem. And I think this verse is actually the key verse to the interpretation of the rest of the passage. That is what he is concluding. I'm putting up front. He concludes that. The most valuable asset of the woman is what? Her faith and her trust in the Lord. Godliness and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be cultivated and valued above charm and beauty. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is to be cultivated and valued above charm and beauty. Now, according to your English translation, 
if you have an NAS or a New King James or an ESV, it says charm is deceptive. I think that's how all three of those versions translate it. Charm is deceptive. NIV, anybody still using that thing? Uh, charm is deceitful. <laughs> deceitful, they say. Charm is deceptive or charm is deceitful. Now, charm may be a gift, but it is not a virtue. Charm is not a fruit of the spirit. Charm is defined as, quote, a trait that fascinates, allures or delights. It's simply a trait. Or it could be defined as compelling attractiveness. You know, we often in our politics as a nation, um, when you watch a debate, often the discussion was, you know, who in a sense, was the most charming. Little attention sometimes is paid to the substance. They've done studies where people have watched a debate versus people who only listened to debate on radio. And they found that there was actually great differences uh, between the way people perceived debates. Uh, they did a study on the Kennedy-Nixon debate many years ago. Those who watched the debate were certain that Kennedy had won it. Those who listened on the radio were sure that Nixon had won the debate. And this is because of the role that charisma sometimes can pl play. Nixon's, you know, a mess. He's sweating up there. And, and Kennedy, you know, way before his time, with all his Hollywood connections, was wearing makeup. You know, that was brand new to do and looked fabulous on the TV. And charm does play into our decisions sometimes. Uh... And we need to beware of that. Um, the, Saul seemed like an attractive king at first, we're told, because he stood a head taller than everyone else. And Saul, we are told, is handsome. But he's an unstable man. And he didn't turn out to be a very good king at all. He started off with some good things, but later he, he makes a mess of it. Ends up persecuting godly Men who would have been a blessing to his kingdom. So let me say a few words uh, to you young men, you gentlemen here. <clears throat> you need to, first of all, be sure to look past the charm uh, effect before you make up your mind about a young woman. Make sure you know her character well, that you've seen her in a variety of circumstances. Otherwise, you may wind up with less than you hoped. Or more than you bargained for. The roof can be very lonely. <laughs> Listen, charming people are not necessarily kind. Charming people are not necessarily loving, selfless. Charm is not a virtue. It may be a gift, but it's not a grace of the Spirit. And therefore, that's why... The author here says that its importance is of less value. Indeed, it could be worse than that. It could be downright deceitful. You may not realize because of her charm that she's very different than whom she's, who she seems at first. She may be charming, but the charm hides the fact that she is not truthful. She cannot be trusted. Um, Proverbs says the compassion of the wicked is cruelty. And yet her charm may cover over this fatal flaw at first. 
Her charm may make her seem like she's compassionate, but it's hollow, it's shallow, it's superficial. It's not sacrificial. Notice here also our text says charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. Now, beauty also is a gift from God. No doubt about it. But in a fallen world, it is a fleeting gift. Physical beauty will be enhanced only by a godly faith and character. Or otherwise, it's going to be marred. The book of Proverbs tells us that beauty without godliness is like putting a ring on the nose of a pig. There's no dressing up a pig. The pig is still a pig, no matter how much cosmetic jewelry you put on it. Look at Solomon. Solomon, boys and girls, had many beautiful wives, didn't he? He was a king. He had his pick of women. But most of them were idolaters. And they led to Solomon's downfall. They led to him worshiping idols rather than the true and the living God. Or let me switch it around. Girls, Absalom, son of David, Absalom, handsome, (laughs) especially the hair, right? Beautiful hair. But he was a rebel. He was a traitor to God. He was a traitor to the covenant. He lifted up his sword against the Lord's anointed. How different from his own father, who, when he cut the very edge of Saul's robe, was stricken in his conscience because He had done that. And here's Absalom trying to kill his father and take over his throne. Godliness is to be prized. It's to be praised above everything else. Ruth chapter one in the book of Ruth. Let me just read to you. uh, Verse 16 to 18 And Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. This is Ruth talking to Naomi. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people, that is God's, the people of God, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. And when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. There is a commitment. There is a love, a godliness there in Ruth that we see and that Boaz eventually learns about as well. So let me say in application a few things. Number one, first of all, let me speak to uh, the women here. Let me charge you tonight to seek the Lord above everyone and everything else in your life. Jesus Christ must Be your first love. He must come first in your life as a woman. Jesus Christ must have first place in your heart. He must have an unrivaled uh, unrivaled loyalty for your highest affections, your will, your thoughts. You must cultivate your love for him above everything and everyone else in your life. More than the world, more than even your own life. When we fall short of the biblical standard of hating our own life, we incur the guilt of idolatry. We violate the first commandment in the Decalogue. You shall have no other gods before me. So make Christ your first love. Now to you young men, secondly, by way of application, you should seek a godly woman. And and we talked about this, that we marry only in the Lord recently. She must be a committed Christian. Solomon failed at this point. You must not fail. You must keep covenant with God 
by marrying a godly woman. Number three, to us all as the church, godliness is most important for us as a church. Holiness. The, the one note that often seems to be missing in much of contemporary evangelicalism. A holy life. And we need to beware of the physical beauty and the charm of churches. Some churches are physically beautiful and elegant in their accommodations. They're charming in their slick presentations and in the programs that they offer. And these things certainly attract people. But there must be holiness in the church. There must be a level of godliness. Now, nobody is going to accuse us of having the most elegant church in the world. But that is not what is most important about us. If you young people are called by God to move to another community, be careful that you are not seduced by the elegance of a, bu- of a building or the fashionableness of the people who attend. If the doctrine of Jesus Christ is unsound, if the gospel is not clearly pronounced and heralded, if the preaching is ho-hum and doesn't seem to have any life to it. How many times did people in our own tradition forsake the humiliation of Jesus Christ when it, Jesus Christ when it came time to take up our cross when it came time to leave our nice buildings because the gospel was no longer being proclaimed in those buildings and it was time to move to gymnasiums and it was time to move to VFW halls and storefronts how many of the friends stayed behind Sometimes family staying behind because of the building rather than the gospel itself. As a woman of excellence as a church, we have to know the word of God. If we're going to be a church of excellence, if we're going to be a wife of excellence to Jesus Christ, we need to pay attention to the Bible. It needs to be our meat and our drink. Um, it is the lamp unto our feet. It is a light unto our path. It's more valuable than fine gold. It's sweeter than honey. The Bible reminds you of God's commandments. The Bible shows you Jesus Christ. Shows you Jesus' perfect life. His substitutionary death for you. Uh, his bodily resurrection. The future judgment of the living and the dead. The Bible reminds you of your constant need of Christ. It reminds you you can't rely on yourself. You can't rely on your works. You have to rely on Christ, on Christ, on Christ. I boast in nothing but Christ. It means that if we're to be a church of excellence, a woman of excellence, a wife of excellence, we're going to have to be committed to prayer as a church. We're going to have to be committed um, to to seek the Lord, to consecrate ourselves to him as as a church. You know, you look at the, the Bible and the women of piety, there's so many wonderful uh, examples. Just go through a few with you here. Esther, chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. She fasted. Esther fasted and prayed in a time of crisis and asked her uncle Mordecai to do the same. Remember when the Jews were being persecuted and the, there was a command that was to go out to kill all the Jews? And Esther um, fasted and prayed with her maidens and called on others to do the same. Sarah 
submitted to Abraham. We're told in first Peter three, six, and she was commended for that submission to her husband. In Luke chapter two, we meet a woman called Anna who gave herself to fasting and prayer in the temple. Mary, the mother of Jesus, was called highly favored one in Luke chapter one, verse twenty six. We have Elizabeth who prayed with her husband Zacharias for a child and was given John the Baptist. We have Mary, who is a friend of Jesus Christ and a sister of Lazarus. And she was the one who gave attention to the teaching of Christ. Mary has chosen the better portion, Jesus said. We have the Syrophoenician woman who was by nature a Gentile, but earnestly sought after Jesus Christ on behalf of her demon possessed child. The Queen of Sheba from Arabia traveled a great distance to hear the word of God from Solomon. You have Priscilla, who with her husband Aquila helped start new churches with the Apostle Paul. You have Lydia, who the Lord opened her heart and she provided hospitality to the apostles. You have Martha, who served Jesus and his disciples. You have the widow who believed Elijah in the days of the famine. You have the childless woman who with her husband provided an upper room for Elisha because she perceived he was a man of God and on and on. Many women of excellence. Now, number two, the woman must be a woman of industry. A woman of excellence is an industrious woman. I want to show you from our text here. If you have your Bibles with you in Proverbs 31, verse 13, she looks for wool and flax. She works with her hands in delight. There she is laboring. Verse 19, she stretches out her hands to the distaff and her hands grasp the spindle. So here she is. What is she doing? She's working in textiles. Verse 14, she's compared to a merchant ship that brings needed goods and wares to her home. Verse 15 and 18, she works long hours sometimes. Early riser, works into the night at times. She does not stay in bed too long. Verse 15, she provides for her family. Verses 16 and 24, she engages in commerce outside the home in real estate, buying and selling the produce to tradesmen. She has a business savvy about her. Verse 27, we're told she doesn't eat the bread of idleness. This woman of excellence does not buy the cultural lie that the good life is a life without work. Work is a gift from God. Our work has been cursed, true, due to our sin, but it is still good. The Apostle Paul says to us, women and men alike, whatever you find your hand doing, do it with all your might. Proverbs warns against being like a sluggard in Proverbs 6, Proverbs 10, 13, 20, 22, chapters 22, on and on, many places there. First uh, Samuel chapter 25, Abigail is praised as an intelligent, wise and industrious woman. She saves her husband's household, even though her husband was worthless. Acts chapter nine, verse 36 and 39. We have Tabitha as an example of an industrious woman. You know, boys and girls, there's a in a story, um, an example from colonial America. Uh, Sarah Edwards. And who is Sarah Edwards? Sarah Edwards was the wife of the great and famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards. Uh, and uh, Sarah Edwards was raised in a uh, uh, pastor's home and uh, she was trained from her earliest days. And God worked a work of grace in her life. And she was very pious woman of prayer, but also a woman of industry. Um, she was engaged to Jonathan Edwards. Imagine this. 
uh, when she was 15 years old and she married at 17. So you can imagine marrying at 17 and being the pastor's wife of the congregation in Northampton, of all things. Um, she would go on to have 11 children. She managed the house mostly herself as her husband spent uh, long hours uh, in the study. Uh, she basically ran the farm. Uh, not only that, but their house was a regular boarding house for the numerous visitors from America and from Britain who would come to see the great theologian. So it's an incredible woman. And uh, as one pastor once said, her reward in heaven is great. <laughs> and that is that is no exaggeration. Let me say this by way of application in section two here. Number one, let me urge you to work hard at your calling. Whatever your calling is here tonight, men or women, work hard at your calling, um, especially those callings, women, which prepare you to be a wife and a mother. Titus 2, 4 says, encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home. Proverbs also says negatively, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands and poverty will come upon you. Let me say this also by way of application to us as a church again, as the wife of Christ. The work of the kingdom is work. We have to be industrious people to build the church of Christ. Yes, ultimately, it is the Lord who builds the house. And if the Lord does not build the house, they labor in vain. But that is not a, a verse of quietism. That is not a verse for us to put our, our head on a, lay, on, a, on a pillow of laziness. We are to be about the work. We are to lift up our eyes and, and look and see that the fields are ripe under harvest. There, there is work to be done by the church. And we as a church don't want to be lazy. We have a perfect husband. And we don't want him to come home and find us idle. We want him to find us building his kingdom around the world. Now, I want to move on to the third point, and that is that the woman of excellence is wise and virtuous. She's wise and virtuous as well. Look again, verse 11 and 12. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. Her husband trusts her, and she gives him good reason to trust her. She does him good. He does not have to wish that he lived on the corner of his roof. Verse 26, she opens her mouth, we're told, in wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. So we see that in addition to cultivating the faith in the Lord, having faith in the Lord and working industrially in her calling, we see that we are supposed to have wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is applied knowledge to a variety of situations, a variety of God-given providences. Proverbs 14, 1 says that the wise woman builds her house. It's the foolish woman who tears it down with her own hands. Now, where do you get this wisdom? Well, James chapter 1, verse 5 says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all men. Now, I want you to hear this generously. Without reproach, if we will ask God for wisdom, God loves to give wisdom to his children. He's not stingy. 
He's not miserly about this. He's not a Scrooge. He gives generously without reproach to those who will seek him for wisdom. As I said earlier, Abigail was a a woman of wisdom. She saved her household and she saved David's household, too. She saved David from shedding innocent blood. Um, We see Esther had wisdom. She knew what the circumstance required. She had to take action before the king. And if I die, I die. She had wisdom to know what the situation was calling for at that moment. Now, wisdom is revealed in the Bible and it's found in the person of Christ. Now, let me say this this is not to be uh, insulting to you young people, but generally young people, you are lacking in wisdom. Wisdom is often not a commodity found in great quantity in young people. You need to acquire wisdom. Remember, we saw that earlier in Proverbs. Buy knowledge. Do not sell it. Acquire wisdom. And where do I get this wisdom? Wisdom comes by fearing the Lord first. It doesn't have to be this way. You can be an exception to your culture. Daniel is a good exception. We think Daniel was probably 14 years old when he went into captivity. And we know that Daniel, even as an early teenager, had wisdom. And he and his friends purposed in their heart that they weren't going to defile themselves with the king's table. They didn't want to be lured away from their heart being back in Jerusalem, even though they physically are in exile. They wanted to be committed to the Lord and committed to God's covenant and committed to um, that, that land which God had excommunicated them from for a season because of the sins of the people. And they were wise young men. They didn't bow down to the idol. They withstood. When there was an edict not to pray to anyone but to the king's God, they disobeyed. First Timothy chapter four, verse 12 says this. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith and purity. Show yourself an example of those who believe. Even though you're young, cultivate wisdom. Show by what you say and what you do that you're a person of wisdom. Seek knowledge, seek wisdom. Let me say this also. It means seeking godly, older people to mentor you. Seek women, girls, a godly, older woman as a mentor in your life. Where do you gain wisdom? Titus chapter two, verse three. Older women are to teach younger women. So we get it from the word of God. We get it by asking for it, according to the promise in James. And we derive it also from the teaching of Older women who have much by way of godliness and life experience. Now, I want to make application to us as a church here. And then I got some conclusions for us here. Here's my application for us as a church collectively. We are to be a wise bride of Jesus Christ. We want to bring glory to our husband. We want Jesus to be honored. We want Jesus's name to be praised in the gates. And we want to do so by being a wise person and a wise congregation. And again, how do we do this? Well, much like I said, scripture, providence, discipleship. I'm going to add a fourth common grace insights. 
Scripture, providence, discipleship, common grace insights. Let me go through those real quickly. Number one, Scripture. Study the Bible. The Bible says it will make you wise unto salvation. In thy light, says the psalmist in Psalm 36, in thy light we see light. Sounds like a weird verse, doesn't it? What do you mean, in my light we see light? Meaning, in the light of God's word, we see the light of general revelation. The word of God makes us wise as to what's going on around here. The unbeliever sees what's going around here, but they don't see it. They suppress the truth of it in unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. So that seeing, they are not believing. We believe and we interpret rightly what's going on in this world with wisdom because of the light of God's word. That's why we need to study the Bible. So that we understand the things that are going on. So scripture. Number two, providence. Study the providence of God. The experiences we go through are ordained by a sovereign God, tailor-made for us as his children. And we ought to study the providences of God in our life and the lives of others. Learn from others. Learn from others' mistakes. Number three. Get wisdom by discipleship. Receive counsel, instruction from other godly people. You know your pastor. I've been in the ministry 25 years, 28 if you include seminary. Um, And I still almost every week pick up the phone and call my mentor. Because I'm not doing this by myself. At least until I'm an old man. And people start calling me. Get yourself somebody else. Wisdom in a multitude of counselors, we're told. Don't rely on your own understanding. Acknowledge God in all your ways. But also listen to the wisdom that can be found sometimes in others. Instruction from godly people is often a means of gaining insight and wisdom. Reading Christian books, I put it in in that category as well. Let me say the fourth one here. I said scripture, providence, discipleship, and then common grace insights. This might sound like a strange one. But we also need to study um, the study of people who have particular experiences, maybe even in certain fields or disciplines, even if they're unbelievers. And I want to just say this by way of a personal note. I think the pendulum sometimes has swung too far in our circles in the doctrine of antithesis. To the point where many reformed people think they have nothing to learn from the unregenerate. And that only believers can have any wisdom at all on any subject. I think we need to remember, and I'm a believer in the doctrine of antithesis. What does light have in common with darkness, Paul says. But I also believe in the doctrine of common grace. That God causes the rain and the sunshine to fall upon the righteous and the unrighteous. And there are such things as common grace insights among non-believers. Now, this, again, requires wisdom. And so that may sound like a catch-22. I'm needing wisdom to get more wisdom. Now, that's it. Um, you, you, you don't want to swallow the unbelieving presuppositions that the unbeliever has, but they, by way of common grace, may have something significant to help you. The, Jesus said it himself, didn't he? He said that, that the sons of this world are shrewder with regard to their own than the sons of light. Meaning there are some things that you can learn by watching even non-believers that maybe 
useful that you can take captive for Christ. Now, of course, if it's immoral, the answer is no. Of course, if it goes against God's law, you may you may not follow them in that way. But where things are lawful, yes, we could be humble and, and learn from those who have common grace gifts and insights. Um, yeah, the unbeliever is in rebellion against God and, and the world looks completely different from the vantage of a believer. But we have to understand the unbeliever nevertheless is inconsistent to his own worldview. That is, he keeps stealing from God. And, and his, you know, his worldview always is holding in tension these contradictions. You know, he's doing math while suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. But if he has a new common grace insight into math, that's useful. <laughs> Take it. And use it to the glory of God. Um, God restrains the wicked from carrying out their rebellion completely against them. So we can get wisdom sometimes from common grace insights in particular areas, even from those who do ultimately reject God. Let me say this in conclusion. Again, summarizing, the proverbial woman is rare and valuable. And if it is true that an excellent wife is rare and valuable, it also seems to suggest the same to be true of the church of Christ. An excellent church is rare and valuable. And we need to appreciate those churches that are industrious, that are wise. Our value comes ultimately, though, from Jesus himself who purchased us with his righteousness, washed us with his blood and sanctifies us. Proverbs 12, 4 says an excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who shames him is rottenness in his bones. Let me say to us all, let us not as individual believers or as a church corporately shame our good husband tonight. Let us not shame Jesus Christ. By playing around with things that are immoral. With things that are shameful. With things that are scandalous. It says here that the godly woman, the proverbial woman, her, her children shall rise up and call her blessed. And we want that, too. We want our theological descendants who follow us have reason to bless us as a church. We want our husband to say, as is said here in our text, many daughters have done nobly. But Jesus says here, but you excel them all. We want Christ to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And may God at the day of judgment grant us that reward and may he reward the labor of our hands and may our works praise him and may Jesus be praised in the gates of heaven. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we